and we'll read from verse 1. It's page 1179 in the Pure Bibles, page 1179, Philippians 2, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. We stand together to sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I don't know if you've uh, seen the television program, I think it's called Room 101. It's um, got Frank Skinner, the comedian, in it, and uh, they get various celebrities to go on, and they have to nominate uh, one thing that they don't like and suggest to Frank Skinner that this thing should go into room 101, never to be seen again, and at the end of the programme, Frank Skinner chooses which one he wants to go into room 101. Well, I'm becoming... Uh, older and grumpier, so I have a few candidates where I to be on that programme as to what I would want to go into room 101. But one of those candidates undoubtedly would be the non-apology. Now, I'm not sure if that's a real thing or not, or if I've just made it up in my head, but, but I know what a non-apology is, and I can tell you the kind of non-apology in its most basic form. So a non-apology in its most basic form would be something along the lines of, I'm sorry that you were offended by what I said. So it sounds like an apology. It uses the words, I'm sorry, but it's not really an apology at all, is it? Another one would be, I'm sorry that you misunderstood my intentions. That's a non-apology in its simplest form. You can become quite skilled at non-apologies. I don't want to criticize politicians. But politicians can be very, very good and very, very clever and very, very subtle in how they use 
non-apologies. I would like them to go into room 101. However, I confess I'm starting my sermon tonight with a non-apology. And it is this. I know that we have just sung a Christmas carol. And I am sorry if you were bemused or confused or concerned uh, by my choice of him. But in my defense, I do have one foot firmly fixed in Christmas. After taking unwell in January, I've basically kind of lost January in my mind. It's as if it's been deleted and I can't find the recycle bin to press restore. February is kind of there, but it's a bit of a blur and I'm struggling to believe that we are in mid-March. I came in almost expecting to see the Christmas tree up where the flowers are every Sunday. However, it's no bad thing, really, to have one foot fixed firmly in Christmas time. Oh, I wish it could be Christmas every day. It's no bad thing, uh, spiritually speaking, because we should always have one foot fixed firmly in the wonder of the incarnation as Christians, shouldn't we? It should never feel strange to praise and to thank God for the wonder of the incarnation, for the wonder of God with us, the wonder of Emmanuel. We should never, or we should be wary to never place the doctrine of the incarnation in a box marked December. It's a glorious truth, and we should feel free to celebrate it all year round. So I'm sorry if that felt a little bit strange, but I'm not sorry, really. (laughs) So we're going to give thanks for the incarnation this evening. I want to encourage you and encourage myself to ask again the question, what difference does this doctrine make to my Monday morning, whatever you'll be doing tomorrow morning. Or even before that, what what difference does this doctrine make to what I'll do as I'm loitering about the pews, speaking to people at the end of the service? What difference should this doctrine make to my life? Paul says, Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I think the New Living Translation says something to be clung on to. Verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So we're going to pause there for a second and ask ourselves a theological question. Does Paul believe that Jesus was just made in the likeness of a man, that he had the the appearance of a man, but that he wasn't truly a man? Is that what Paul believes? Is that what Paul is trying to teach in this passage, that Jesus was just made to look like a man? He was like Superman or an alien or an android. scratch the surface and you see it's not really a man after all. Because you could use this passage in that way, couldn't you? It speaks about being made in a human likeness. Uh, He was found in appearance as a man. Did Jesus just come down to the world as a tourist in disguise? 
He was made to look like a local so that he would blend in. But he wasn't really a human being. He wasn't really made man. And so stuff basically just kind of bounced off him. He looked like a man, but he never breathed like a man. He didn't bleed like a man. He didn't suffer like a man. He doesn't really understand what you're facing in your life just now because he hasn't experienced the reality for himself. He had the appearance of being a man, but he didn't know what it's like to be tired and to be sore and to be stressed and to feel yourself pulled in a thousand different directions. To be let down by someone that you really loved and truly trusted. To feel fragile or fearful. To hurt, to grieve, to cry. He saw it all close up, but he didn't know it. He didn't experience it himself because he was only ever made in human likeness. Is that what Paul means to say? Is that what he's trying to teach? Well, clearly it's not. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, there is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So that's not what Paul believed about Jesus, that he was not really a man. He was a man. Jesus himself takes to himself that uh, messianic title, the Son of Man. That's the way Jesus refers to himself more than any other way, which means human being. If you get a modern paraphrase, it will probably paraphrase that uh, phrase that way, human being. The idea that Jesus wasn't a real man, that he wasn't true flesh and blood, was actually one of the first heresies that the early church had to face and had to fight. And you see traces of that in the New Testament, John in particular. So if you read 2 John, verse 7, he says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. And who are these deceivers? Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Remember how John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is God. And then a few verses later, verse 14, the words became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's what the New Testament teaches. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Fully God and fully man. The Nicene Creed says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not created, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became truly human. So we've heard from John's Gospel. That's written kind of 85, 90 AD. 
We've heard from the Nicene Creed, that was written 325 AD. So I think it's only right that we should hear from Graham Kendrick, 1986. This is what he says. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. See how the, the humanity of Christ points to the humility of Christ. He was willing to humble himself, to come down, to condescend, to be born as a baby in Bethlehem. We've made the incarnation, I think, very clean and very cuddly and very cute, almost quite twee at times. We've made the nativity scene itself uh, quiet and quaint. But remember, Bethlehem is full of people who have gathered for this census. It's only a very small town. We probably wouldn't even have called it a town. It's overflowing with people. And in this manger, this kind of cave, basically, you have animals and you have this young family. You have a baby. I mean, can you imagine the reality of the conditions, the sounds and the smells, the temperature. It's not quiet and it's not quaint. It's not luxury, it's poverty. Noisy, smelly, messy poverty. That is what Jesus willingly was born into for us. That God himself would come down to that for you and for me is amazing. That he would embrace the limitations of humanity. That he would make himself nothing, as the NIV says. That he would empty himself, literally. And then embrace these conditions for us. But it goes deeper than that, because he grew up. Didn't remain a baby. He grew up. The child grew and became strong, says Luke. The child became a man. And as a man, he subjected himself to servanthood and to suffering. To being misunderstood and mocked and rejected and reviled. He knew all of these things. And so he understands. He understands what it's like to be a human being in a world that is often profoundly unfair. He understands. He sympathizes. He empathizes with the suffering of his people. Not just as one who is all-knowing, as God is, but as one who has actually experienced the reality himself. People think that all religions are the same. There is no other religion that teaches this, that God has come down to earth, that he has embraced the limitations of humanity, and that he has willingly suffered for his people. He knows and he cares. Other religions may say, if you do A, B, and C, you'll be able to be good enough to climb up to God. 
you fulfill these religious rituals and rites, if you're morally good enough, you'll climb up to God, to heaven, to nirvana. You'll find yourself, you'll lose yourself, whatever the goal is, you'll get there if you do all this stuff. Christianity says you'll never climb up to God. He's too high. He's too holy. But He loves you. And though you cannot climb up to Him by being good enough or religious enough, He has come down to us. He has condescended. He knows what it is to suffer. We do not have a high priest, says Hebrews chapter 4, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. There's the only difference. He was without sin. So let's come back now to Philippians chapter 2. Church in Philippi is in many ways a very, very good church. There is much to commend this church to us. It's a kind church, a giving church, a, a um, an active and, and lively church. But any healthy church should be aware of the dangers. A, a healthy church can become a sick church, and a sick church can become a dead church. And it doesn't take very long. And so there are some signs of sickness kind of in its early stages, and Paul has discerned this, or he's been notified of this, and so he writes to this church to try and challenge them. It's maybe some selfish ambition, some ungodly gossip, some lack of love, some disunity. And Paul points them to Jesus. He tries to cure the sickness by pointing them back to Christ. So he writes chapter 2 not primarily to comfort them. He assumes if you look at verse 1, he assumes that they are already been comforted by the love of God in Christ Jesus. He, he assumes that that's where they're getting their courage and their comfort from. But here he writes to challenge them. Some of you guys, you know, you're, you're building your own wee fiefdom. You're using the church for your own name. You're defending your own reputation. You're trying to make a name for yourselves. Some of you are bickering, you're gossiping. Well, consider, says Paul, Christ. Consider the Lord. Consider your Lord. Consider the condescension of Christ. Condescension that we see supremely, not as we look to the cradle, as amazing as that scene is, but as we look to the cross. That's where he points them ultimately, not to the incarnation, but to the crucifixion. Being in very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So it's not just death. It's death on a cross, an undeserved death, an agonizing death, and a shameful death. If you were a Roman citizen, then no matter what you had done, no matter uh, how terrible or treacherous or evil or wicked or depraved your crime, you were not allowed to be crucified. 
Because no matter who you were, no matter what you had done, if you were a citizen of Rome, then crucifixion was beneath you. That's how Rome viewed crucifixion. Imagine the most uh, horrible, wicked, evil, depraved crime that you can. You commit that crime, still crucifixion is beneath you. That's how Rome viewed crucifixion. And there aren't many parallels between Rome and first century Judaism, but Jews saw crucifixion as shameful as well. Deuteronomy 21, 23, a hanged man is cursed by God. And so the Jews viewed those who were crucified as being under a curse from God himself. Jesus took the shame for us. He took the curse for us. Paul picks up that theme in Galatians. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone hanged on a tree. Consider your Lord, says Paul. Uh, made mention of the condescension of Christ. Spurgeon has a sermon. I should just have preached his one, really. But he's a sermon called The Condescension of Christ. You can Google that when you get home. And his text is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Consider how he humbled himself. Consider how for your sake he willingly became poor. Consider how he loved you. And be humble with each other. Build each other up. Build and bless. Don't build your own empire. Don't build your own ego. Don't build your own reputation. But build up your brothers and sisters. Build them up in Christ Jesus. Follow in the footsteps of your Lord, the author and perfecter of our faith. Alistair Begg says, when you preach a sermon, you should always have a wee note on your laptop or your office desk that says, so what? Because apparently people in the pews might be sitting there thinking, so what? So what? what? What difference should this make once this service is over, once we're talking, once uh, we wake up tomorrow morning, we go to our place of work, or we go back to our families? What difference should this make? Well, let me ask you to imagine something. Imagine that wherever you go this week, everywhere you go this week, that the Apostle Paul is with you, that you're, you're taking him with you. Don't don't introduce him to people or speak to him or anything. That would be a bit strange. But imagine he's there with you. And when you go to do something or to say something, and the Apostle Paul goes to step in and say, ah, 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 Ross or Deborah or Jim or Morag, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Well, that's where and that's when 
the application ought to come in. We start to try and lift ourselves up by putting other people down. That's when we need to consider Christ our Lord. That's when we need to consider our own ways and make sure that our lives are consistent with the Lord that we love. Live like that in church. Live like that in the house and live like that in the world. In these moments, remember the example of Jesus and act or speak in a way that honors Him by the grace of God and for the glory of God. That's not quite where Paul finishes, though. Had I been neat and tidy and had a wee three-point sermon up in the PowerPoint, I could have had the condescension of Christ, to borrow that from Spurgeon. I could have had cradle as point one, cross as point two, point three would be crown, because that's where Paul goes, isn't it? That's where the story finishes, not on the cross, but with Christ being crowned. That's the economy of God, that He humbles Himself, that He lowers Himself, that He willingly, is willingly demeaned, that He surrenders that which is rightfully His. And as He humbles Himself under God's hand at the right time, God lifts Him up, God raises Him up, God honors Him. Therefore, says Paul, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See the silliness of selfishness in those words. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. He is ruling. He is reigning. And what is He doing? He's, he's praying for you and for me. And one day we will reign with Him. So there's no need for us to build a wee name for ourselves in this world which will be swept away in a moment's time. There's no, way, no need for us, certainly, to try and lift ourselves up by bringing other people down. It's foolishness. We are free we know that God loves us, if we know that our future is with Him, and we are free from living our lives like that. We are free to build up other people, to bless other people, to honor other people, to think of other people more highly than we think of ourselves. We are free to live our lives like that because we know that we are loved, we know that we are accepted, we know that we're going to have this wonderful and glorious future with our Heavenly Father. We ought to be secure in the love of the Lord and able to love others as He has first loved us. All that matters is that we are found faithful. All that matters is that we follow in the footsteps of our Lord as we wait for our reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Amen.